Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, September 28, 2017, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Tommy Durkin. More than half a million households in L.A. County are suffering from food insecurity. That's according to a report released today by the L.A. Department of Public Health. Food insecurity is described as limited to no access to nutritional foods. It disproportionately affects low-income communities. Teresa Blanco of the Public Health Department says that in order to address food insecurity, we must also address financial insecurity. That's at the heart of this. If we want to address the issue of food insecurity, we need to make sure we're addressing issues of poverty. Best ways to start doing that is addressing living wage. South Central Los Angeles is one of the communities most highly affected by the lack of healthy food. Blanco says USC students can lend a hand. So I would have them go to the LA Food Bank website and volunteer. That would be a wonderful way to help out. We'll continue our discussion about food insecurity later in From Where We Are. Two California lawmakers are urging Governor Jerry Brown to sign a bill granting free community college tuition for first-year full-time students. California Senator Kevin DeLeon and Assemblyman Michael Santiago held a news conference this morning. Santiago, who introduced the bill, says it could allow nearly 20,000 new students to attend college. Governor Brown has been hesitant in signing the bill for cost reasons. He's also worried that free tuition will go to students who can afford it. Oakland officials say the Golden State Warriors followed through on their commitment to refund the city nearly $800,000. The money was spent on hosting the team's 2017 championship parade. The city said in a statement today it was grateful for the payment because it offset taxpayer money used for the fire, police, and public works employees who staffed the parade. The Warriors now head to San Francisco, where their new arena is slated to open in 2019. Tonight, we're looking at clear skies, with temperatures dropping to a low of 66. Tomorrow heats up with sunny skies and a high of 85 as we enter the weekend. The high temperatures will continue through Sunday and begin to drop as we exit September and fall finally begins. So be sure to get outside and take advantage of the heat. Federal authorities today announced the arrest of some 100 people in the Los Angeles area. This follows a four-day nationwide immigration sweep. Operation Safe City targeted people with criminal convictions and immigrants in violation of federal laws, including gang members and fugitives. Nationwide, a total of 498 people were arrested. Most of the arrests were made in Philadelphia. No one registered under DACA was targeted by the operation. The Los Angeles Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Commission today asked the department to put the brakes on its drone program. The Sheriff's Department currently has one drone, and it can only be used for hostage situations, search and rescue, and bomb squad operations. At the Oversight Commission meeting, members of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition were out in full force. Some wore t-shirts with the slogan, "We Will we sleep or will we fight? Among them was Hamid Kam. He said that the coalition had a simple demand for the commissioners. They pass a motion demanding that the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, uh, their drone program be permanently grounded and they're not allowed to use these drones because what is happening is that there's escalating militarization of policing that is happening in the country. Some protesters said 
they were concerned that the drones could eventually carry weapons. Several said that they were also worried about mission creep, that one drone could lead to more, and that the kinds of missions that they were allowed to be used on could be expanded. Lieutenant Sue Bergerkowski said the Sheriff's Department was listening to those concerns. I think there's a lot of oversight already in place to ensure we're not going to have that mission creep. In the end, the board sided with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, voting 5-4 to four to ask the sheriff to halt the drone program. Emmy Award-winning actress Julia Louis-Dreyfus announced today that she has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Louis-Dreyfus is known for her roles on Seinfeld and Veep. In a Twitter post, she said, One in eight women get breast cancer. Today, I'm the one. Dreyfus credits her friends, family, and fantastic insurance as the good news of this diagnosis. She did not provide further details about her diagnosis. It's five minutes after the hour. I'm Tommy Durkin. Thanks, Tommy. Coming up on From Where We Are, we take a visit to Hugh Hefner's Beverly Hills Mansion. USC is expected to announce in the coming days that it will defer Greek life recruitment until spring semester. The new policy would require students to go through a semester so they have a USC GPA before they rush for a fraternity or sorority. The debate over deferring rush until spring has largely centered on how it will affect the social lives of freshmen. But in this commentary, senior Aaron Rode asks, what about the freshmen who can't consider Greek life? When I was a freshman at USC, I knew the economic backgrounds of the girls on my floor the very first week of school. The $2,000 price tag for Greek life made it easy to identify who was affluent enough to rush for a sorority. Deferring rush could impact the social lives of freshmen who can afford to join a fraternity or sorority. But what about the freshmen who immediately realize they can't afford to even consider Greek life? They're excluded from an entire system of student groups based solely on socioeconomic background. Our country has moved toward equal opportunity in education. That's why schools offered need-blind admission. Meanwhile, USC's Greek system has lagged behind. Most Greek students would admit that discriminating against people based on their economic background is unfair. Most Greek students would admit that discriminating against people based on their economic background is unfair. But their actions continue to deprive students the advantages that Greek life offers. Greek organizations argue that if USC defers rush, all other student organizations should be treated the same. That deferment is only fair if it's applied to all orgs. But Greek life is nowhere near the same as other student orgs. Other groups aren't responsible for creating a class divide starting the moment students step onto campus. If you want to be treated like other orgs, then act like it. Be open to all students, regardless of their financial ability. So the problem with Greek life isn't when students can join. It's the large group of students who are excluded from even considering Greek life. It's why schools like Harvard are moving towards eliminating Greek life entirely. If USC's Greek system wants to avoid the same fate, it better get to work on being economically inclusive. For Annenberg Media, I'm Erin Rohde. At the start of the school year, the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism installed a new dean. In this week's Match Volume, Garrett Schwartz speaks to Willow Bay, Annenberg's first female dean. They talked about unbiased reporting and the importance of innovation in media. My name is Garrett Schwartz, and you're listening to Match Volume. I am here with Willow Bay, the new dean of the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Thanks so much for joining us, Willow. I'm great to be here with you. 
you were the first female dean of the Annenberg School. Mm -hmm. As a female dean, how do you think you're going to bring a different perspective or sensibility than your predecessors? So I think every dean brings a different sensibility, a different set of skills, experiences, worldview to this job. So while I'm um, excited to be reaching that milestone, right, breaking that glass ceiling and having and having the first being the first woman to be in this job, I don't think it's my femaleness that necessarily makes me different at my job, but it's me who makes me different at my job. And that the total picture of me, part of which is being is being a woman. What do you see as Annenberg's role in preparing, training, educating this upcoming generation of journalists, uh, communication scholars, mm -hmm. as well as PR practitioners? So one of the things that's interesting for me, switching, switching gears, um, switching roles, actually, from the head of the journalism school to um, the role of dean is that I do have to think more broadly. So I appreciate you asking the question in that way, because we really do have to think about where our communication students are going, where our PR students are going, and where our journalism students are going. Think about that in a much broader way. We happen to be living at this moment in time when communication and all its disciplines is front and center in a way that it's never been before. I'm going to transition to some of the more modern news of what's going on in the in the news cycle. We're going to talk news? We're going to talk uh -huh. news. How would you advise students here at Annenberg to balance being a fair, un, uh, sorry, a fair, unbiased reporter, but also being a proud Trojan when addressing certain stories that might portray USC in a, a certain negative light? Well, I think you answered the question for me in a lot of ways. First of all, I noticed you said proud Trojan. What what I think is great about that is you articulate and acknowledge that you come to a story with a bias. Everybody brings biases, right, to to their work. But being able to articulate it and address it in a very transparent way is critical, right? So now now we know that you're going to be mindful that as a proud Trojan, you may have a bias in place. Acknowledge it and put it aside and, and then focus on the fairness and accuracy um, of your reporting. And I think, again, you answered, you, you answered the question, right? Fair, accurate, ethical. And I think given that we are here um, working to get the point of view of both sides, the three words you mentioned were fair, accurate, and ethical. Those are three traits that President Trump has constantly attacked the mainstream American news media, uh, media nice segue. of lacking. Nice segue. What would your message be to Annenberg students in response to President Trump's anti-media rhetoric? I don't think we need a response to President Trump's rhetoric. I think what we need to do um, is to continue on our mission of um, studying to be intellectually and ethically rigorous reporters. And in our mission of teaching and training our students to understand exactly what that means to be intellectually and ethically rigorous reporters. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Match Volume. I was sitting down with Willow Bay, the new dean for the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. Instagram and Twitter are rolling out massive changes to their platforms. 
On Tuesday, Twitter announced it's allowing up to 280 characters per tweet, doubling its original limit. While Twitter is concerned with how many words, Instagram is trying to change how words are used. Chris Perfett has the story. You've long been able to filter your comments on Instagram. Now you can select exactly who is allowed to comment on your photos. This was one of the new features announced by the company on Tuesday. The other? Anonymous reporting for live video. According to Instagram, this new feature will enable other users to anonymously report videos in which a user is showing signs of mental health issues, with the intention being that Instagram can then get them the help they need. The move comes after years of debate about what responsibilities, if any, companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram have for the well-being of their users. So what do social media users think about these changes? I think because of how prevalent these social platforms are, I think there is some degree of responsibility to make sure that they're at least trying as much as they can to make sure that it's a safe environment because they really, um, especially with young people, like it's very much a part of our lives and we can't necessarily control what goes on there. I was in charge of our school, uh, my high school's uh, Gender and Sexuality Alliance and we had our Instagram account and two years ago we started going strong on like our club days and activities that we would do and we started receiving negative comments about like, oh, like, just, like slurs about um, queer people. That was Adriana Robakowski and Pearl Nergis, two students on USC's campus. For some, the latest moves by Instagram and other companies are all about playing catch-up. You know, they've sort of had to adapt to the speed of light that their platforms are growing in. These platforms have really evolved so quickly. They've gained so many users, and I think they're just starting to catch up, you know, to the things that could happen on these platforms. That's Amara Aguilar, professor of digital media at USC. She says social media companies are having to perform something of a balancing act. And I think it's important that people take care of their mental health. I think it's really important people, other people aren't allowed to like infringe on that. Um, but at the same time, again, we have these freedoms, you know, freedom of speech, um, freedom to be on Twitter or not to be on Twitter. And, you know, these are public arenas that people voluntarily step into. It's not required that every citizen be on these tech platforms. According to a Pew Research study published earlier this year, 4 in 10 adults in the United States have been harassed online. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chris Perfett. Kenya's election rerun is getting murkier by the week. In this week's International Current, Ryan Thompson takes a look at the most recent developments. Things are a mess in Kenya. Elections have been pushed back, opponents can't agree, and true democracy is on the line. Welcome to The Current International. Today, Kenya's presidential election, take two. What has happened over the past seven days, and is a fair election really in sight? I'll let you be the judge. I'm Ryan Thompson. Kenya is a country near and dear to my heart. It's a special place that's seen a renaissance since a violent period that followed the 2007 elections. In fact, in the past 10 years, it's become a hub for emerging technology, social aid, and African entrepreneurship. Many consider the East African country a model for other countries on the continent. But maybe not anymore. Let's start back in August. A highly contentious election resulted in a win by the sitting president. Kenya's Supreme Court ruled the election results were not valid and said new elections would need to be held within 60 days. Keep in mind, this was one of the most expensive elections in the world. The cost of securing each vote was $25, and they were monitored by agencies from all around the world. Flash forward to mid-September. A date was set for October, but on September 18th, the firm managing the voting said it wouldn't be ready in time. 
Days later, the Supreme Court explained why they annulled the results of the original August election, and that led to protests in the streets. Last week, the Election Commission pushed back the rerun by nine days. As of now, it's scheduled for October 26. But this past week has been full of negotiations about those elections between two candidates and the Election Commission, and they're not going well. The candidate opposing the sitting president, the man who initiated the contesting of the results, his name is James Arango. He walked out of negotiations about how the rerun will be managed. He's threatening protests, which could further set back preparations for a fair ballot. Everything that went wrong in terms of the previous elections has been now sanitized by this new proposed legislation. So where we go from here is unclear. There's a lot of questions that remain unanswered, and a lot is on the lines. As of now, Kenyans will head to the polls on October 26. But as Kenyans say, in Kenya, nothing's for sure. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ryan Thompson. Today, Playboy founder Hugh Hefner is being lionized as a visionary, a pioneer, and a crusader for social justice. Hefner died last night at the age of 91. Not everyone was a fan. Today, the CEO of GLAAD, an LGBTQ organization, called him a misogynist who exploited women. But today, at Hefner's Playboy Mansion in Beverly Hills, Sarah McGraw, McGrew sorry, found women with kind words for Hefner. I arrived at the Playboy Mansion around mid-morning to find news crews lined up filming stand-ups and live shots. Paparazzi Shane Fanton showed up at 6.30 this morning. There was a couple security detail that went inside. The garbage man came. They delivered a paper on the front of the gates there, which coincidentally has got Hugh Hefner on the cover. Later, someone tucked that newspaper into the gate where people had left bouquets of flowers. At one point, a groundskeeper at the mansion leaned out of his car and asked me what was going on, not knowing that Hefner had died last night at the age of 91. A few hours after I got there, more cars began to drive by as passengers hung out the windows taking pictures. Eventually, fans of Hugh Hefner began walking up to the mansion's gates. Most were women. Miona Matrich, a tourist from England, says Hefner helped empower women. People would say that he has for the wrong reasons, uh, or that he that maybe the women that he's he has empowered or given this opportunity to are viewed in a bad light because of what they do, and I don't think that's very fair. Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Empire are controversial for many people, but he opened up a dialogue about sex and sexuality. Tammy Bacon from Detroit thinks Hefner brought a beauty to sex. He uh, actually exposed sex to the community, but he did it in a way that he, uh, I think he gave careers to a lot of women. Put beauty into sex, what we saw back in the times in the 50s, 60s, 70s, as something that was taboo. He just really made it attractive. Hefner founded Playboy magazine 63 years ago and talked to Time magazine in 2009 about the influence of his magazine. Sex in America uh, has changed, and behavior has changed dramatically. Hefner survived by his wife and four children. For Annenberg Media News, I'm Sarah McGrew.
As we reported earlier, L.A. County today released figures on residents who suffer from food insecurity. And as Alexandra Mason reports, this is an issue that also affects college students. If you're hungry on USC's campus, there is a place you can get food, but it's easy to miss. It's right here. It's a grab-and-go. Oh, okay. It's a small cabinet filled with snacks and one of the resources for students facing food insecurity. Assistant Dean Mary Ho opens the cabinet to show me what's inside. So it's a pantry and we have, we try to stay healthy. So pasta, pasta sauce, uh, oatmeal, cereal, uh, snack bars, and soup items. Um, According to a recent study by National Student Campaign Against Hunger and Homelessness, food insecurity is a problem even for students who are employed, participate in a campus meal plan, or seek other financial or material help. Theo Fowles is an assistant director with the Center for Black Cultural and Student Affairs. Anybody can feel food insecure, um, you know, whether you, you come from a low income or not. I think that there are times when you, you, you might just realize, like, hey, I didn't eat today. Um, and so um, that's a form of food insecurity. Fowles is a liaison for USC's virtual food pantry. It's been around for a year now. To get it, you go online, and if you're approved, you get a $25 gift card to Trader Joe's. A set of gift cards that students that are food insecure can apply to um, and receive through various points on campus, like our office here. But it's not meant to be a long-term solution. Um, so uh, this is an emergency service, so not something that uh, students uh, typically use on a, on a weekly basis, but um, you know, a, as they need it. Students can only get the cards three times. However... Select students are eligible for CalFresh if they are working at least 20 hours a week with work-study. The university has counselors available to help students apply for CalFresh. More and more students are becoming aware that they qualify. Um, a lot of times I think students um, just feel like, I'm, I'm a college student, I'm supposed to, to feel hungry, um, but that's not the case. For Annenberg Media, I'm Alexandria Mason. A perfect day in L.A. for most means light traffic and sunny weather. But for USC football fans, the term takes a whole new meaning. Here's Mary Page Nesfetter with today's Trojan Tales. Touchdown, USC! With three seconds to go, the Trojans have scored! Pete Arbogast is back on the air, which can only mean one thing. USC football has returned to the Coliseum. And this year, as with every year since 1989, he's chasing perfection. A perfect day in L.A. As I stand with him in the parking lot outside of the Coliseum, he tells me about coming up with the expression as a kid. My buddy Mark Hoppy and I were kids uh, growing up in Hollywood, and uh, we said, uh, SC just won today, and UCLA and Notre Dame both lost. It's a perfect day. What began as a simple exclamation between friends has grown into an iconic phrase as fans look forward to a perfect day each season, a day when USC wins and rivals Notre Dame and UCLA both lose. When Arbogast started keeping track, there were 21 perfect days on record. Now there's 51 of them. Sometimes it happens when SC beats UCLA or SC beats Notre Dame. It's not independent of each other. Sometimes all three things happen. On this year's opening day, Arbogast came to the Coliseum to celebrate the last perfect day, which took place on November 26, 2016, when USC beat Notre Dame and UCLA lost to Cal. While last year's season gave a record five perfect days, for a perfect day, it's not about numbers or rankings, it's about Trojan pride. So many SC fans that in the ratings and all that, if you if UCLA and Notre Dame lose, it's better if they win and we're beating good teams, but we don't care. 
I'd rather have them lose every game. It's fine. Uh, and when they play each other, uh, our minds explode. With high expectations for the 2017 season, Arbogast is hopeful for the perfect days to come. If one should happen, you can be sure to find him standing in front of the Olympic Gateway and toasting USC success with the Perfect Day Club. That's a group of fans who come together to celebrate each perfect day. However, there is one rule in the Perfect Day Club. Don't talk about the perfect day until it's over. Here's the one thing. If you, if you believe in the perfect day, you can never mention the perfect day while it's going on. You have to wait till it's done. As the parking lot fills with fans dressed in cardinal and gold, I look to the headless statues that guard the Olympic flame, hoping for the next perfect day. With Annenberg Media News, I'm Mary Page Nesfetter. By Alyssa Lyon, Josh Zang, and Mary Page Nesfetter. Sophomore cornerback Jack Jones is showing in last week's football game against Cal was enough to garner him the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week award. Stuart Gill caught up with Jack to discuss his performance. If someone asked you who the Heisman hopeful at USC is, you'd likely think of Sam Darnold. But there's another player that fits the description. Sophomore cornerback Jack Jones is fueled by a desire to be recognized as the best player in the country. As a kid, you know, growing up, being competitive, never wanting to lose, um, I always looked at myself as number one. And I feel like, I feel like and believe that everybody should look at themselves as number one because if you don't look at yourself as number one, who will? You know, and, and at, the, at one point, I don't think it's me being cocky. I think it's me being confident. Like I said, you got to have confidence in yourself. Is if not, everybody will doubt you. And in the last two weeks, Jack's proven it's foolish to doubt him, at least as the conference's best defensive back. He's had three total interceptions, two of them coming last week against Cal. It's the leadership of his teammates, Jack says, that's allowing him to feel more comfortable in a starting role. I would say looking up to the older guys. Uh, Dory was here, you know, I looked up to him. Uh, I see how he handled certain things. Um, now that he's gone, I, I look up to guys like Christopher Hawkins, you know, uh, Biggie, Mom Marshall, uh, Marvell Tell, Jane Harris, you know, pretty much all the DBs. You know, those guys know what to do. They've been here before, so they just take me under their wing and we just go out and attack. Jack also credits the defensive line for his success in recent games. First of all, I say thank you to the D-line because the D-line had pressure on the quarterback. Lord knows how many times that man got hit. Um, so, you know, I... I just give them the credit, really, because they, they was putting pressure on him, and he gave us an opportunity to make a play on the ball. So what does it mean uh, What does it mean to you personally and to this whole defensive unit to, to have you be named Defensive Player of the Week? Uh, it was big, but, I mean, the week's behind us now. We got, we got to attack Washington State. You know, me focusing on last week is going to end up losing this week. Uh, our, our mindset is just going and be 1-0 every week. So enough about last week. Jack and the Trojans face a tough test on Friday night when they travel to Washington State University to take on the Cougars and their record-setting quarterback, Luke Falk. Uh, he's a great quarterback, you know, a quarterback with experience. He's been there since his freshman year. Um, I'm just looking to, to play against a, a good caliber quarterback like that. Each week we just come out to be 1-0. Uh, you know, we know that we're going to have competition every week, so we just focus on the competition that week.
USC head coach Clay Helton compares Falk to SC's own quarterback, Sam Darnold. Luke does a good job of feeling the pocket. You know, if the, if it's if he's a quick decision maker and if it's there, he pulls the trigger. But he also is it's kind of like kind of like Sam in the ability to create and keep his eyes downfield. I actually made a cut up today and showed that of him being able to escape out of the pocket and how he he is a kid that likes to look downfield and try to find the open guy rather than running. Um, and so um, he does a really good job of it. He's dangerous outside the pocket. Coach Helton is going to rely on his defense to slow down Falk, but he's also aware that the offense's ability to maintain possession will be key. You know, in my mind, and, I, and this is why today was so important, it is it needs to be a really good third down efficiency day for us offensively. This is a bunch that puts up a lot of plays and a lot of points, 44 points a game. Um, and, and we talked about it in our team meeting today that it's one versus two in this category. Um, and it's probably the key to the game, in, in my mind, is keeping it away from their offense. Last one. Helton expects a dogfight, and he knows that USC's remarkable fourth quarter play will have to continue. We found ways to be really good when it counts. Um, I think about the, our fourth quarter performances over the first four games and, and just how we finished. Um, it, they've always been a group, a, a group of kids that when their back is up against the wall, they perform. Uh, and uh, we've been in some tight games uh, over the first four games. Uh, hopefully that, that helps to our advantage as we get even further into Pac-12 play because it'll be some tight games. you got to find ways to win. I think of last week and I think of our defense, you know, in the fourth quarter when it's a 16-13 ball game, all of a sudden they're getting turnover after turnover after turnover. And that's what good team play is. It's just not one person uh, or one unit. It just seems like when one, one, when one of us is a little bit low, the other one just picks us up. And that's what you want from a team. Hopefully we can get all up here. <laughs> that, that would be nice. Uh, but uh, we're getting closer to that. We're getting closer. We'll see Jack and the rest of the Trojans put it all together on Friday night at 7.30. With Annenberg Media, I'm Stuart Gill. That's it from From Where We Are Today. Today's show was produced by Norhan Matmun. We had help today from Trevor Denton. Chris Perfett is our board operator. The theme music was composed by Derek Rinfo. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. And from all of us at Annenberg Radio News, happy birthday, Norhan Matmoon. I'm Nadia Caldwell.